0: Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic universal monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Ready to pop the question? from the apostrophe podcast network previously on booby trap
0: it was safe you know it was just it was a safe pleasant area what sort of kid was he Uh, i would say the main thing about richie really defined him was his involvement in the boy scouts chuck lived two doors down from richie so you know the friendship there was solid and there was trust between the two of them Richie's father, he starts to get concerned because Richie never came home for dinner. And the father at one point said, I hope that's not my son on the floor. The rifle had discharged and shot him in the chest and killed him. That leads us to a character in this story whose name is Tony Simmons. Carmine Falco appeared before Dade County Court Judge Arthur Winton and was charged with manslaughter. The 31-year-old Scoutmaster, who is now relieved of all scouting duty, is charged in connection with the July 18th shooting death of 14-year-old Richard Brush, Jr. inside Falco's home at 15231 Northeast 11th Court. Falco allegedly set up a rifle as a booby trap inside his home. Detectives say Brush was shot and killed as he broke into his Scoutmaster's house. Detectives say this may be the first time the issue of criminal negligence in connection with a booby trap killing will be considered in a Florida well, court. Uh, let's not say that
1: Days following the death of Richard Brush, there was confusion and uncertainty as to what actually had happened. Word got around pretty quickly that Richie had been shot by a weird booby trap mechanism, but there were many conflicting versions about the chain of events leading up to the shooting. Jerry Bruckowski, one of the kids implicated in the break-in, was still missing, and everyone assumed that he had been involved. But why did he disappear? Did he have something to do with the actual shooting? Mike had been away from the neighborhood gossip for most of the summer, but he was shocked when he heard about the death of one of his local comrades. But two days later, on Friday, July 20th, he would find out even more about this bizarre shooting. And it was something that would haunt him for decades to come. Welcome to Season 1 of the Miami Chronicles' Booby Trap, Episode 2. On the night of Wednesday, July 18th, 1979, the same night as Richie's shooting, Mike Fragomeni was on an adventure of his own. He had a new love interest, a girl he had met in school that spring. The problem was that during the summer, she was living with her father in Hollywood. Hollywood is a city about 10 miles north of North Miami. On that night, Mike and his friend Ralph decided to take a bus to visit this girl. What Mike and his friend didn't realize was that the return bus stopped running at 9 p.m. The two of them made the crucial mistake of hopping the bus going in the opposite direction, figuring the bus would eventually turn around and head south. It didn't. Instead, the bus went out of service and left the two of them stranded, 15 miles from home, with no money and no way to get back to their neighborhood.
0: So I met this girl in eighth grade. It had to have been the spring. It must have been the spring of 1979. So on that night, my friend and I, Ralph, um, we decided to go up and um, see her and hang out. So we took the bus, which was a huge mistake. Neither one of us had a car at the time and it was too far to ride our bikes. So we um, busted, it, which, you know, I guess people who lived in L.A. or cities that are similar to L.A. Miami is definitely similar to L.A. Um, The mass transit system is really bad. It's not like living in New York or San Francisco or Chicago where the buses, the subways are really good. Um, Miami was built for cars. You know, it was built up primarily post-World War II. And if you're going to go that far somewhere, um, you pretty much need a car. But we decided that we would, you know, make it an adventure. And so we got on the bus and, um, getting there wasn't too much of a problem other than we had to wait a really long time for the bus to come. But you know, once it did, it pretty much got us there we hung out with her for a couple hours and then it was time to come home. I guess it was probably around nine, nine 30. And, um, we waited for the bus to come on the other side of the street. It never came. And finally we saw the bus coming across the street, which was the bus going North, the same one we took to get there. So we ran across the street and we asked the bus driver, when's the bus going south going to arrive? And he said, hop on. I don't know why he said that, but he just said, get on. So we rode on that bus for like another 10 minutes. He just continued going north and made a bunch of turns. And we didn't know where the hell we were. And... Finally, he says, that's the end of the line. And he just turns the bus off. And we said, well, wait a minute. What about going south? And he looked at us like we had never asked him that. (laughs) So, So suffice it to say, the bus driver was an idiot. Okay. So we were stranded up, like, I don't know how many miles north. You know, it was an adventure. We just one thing is we knew that if we just stayed on collins avenue and continued walking south we'd eventually get to sunny isles boulevard which was the street we needed to get to to get back to north miami beach this wasn't too much of a problem at first because one of the things i get into in the book in a little bit more detail is the kind of kid that ralph caesar was Uh, and what kind of kid was that um i'm not going to get into that now but come on now you have to tell me Long story short is um, his dad was a drug dealer and um, uh, Ralph had just had his birthday, I think the month okay. before. And for his birthday, his dad gave him a brick of blonde Turkish hashish. What? His father was <laughs> that's Turkish. That's an
1: interesting present to
0: get. Yeah. From your dad. A, from your dad. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. His dad was like that guy in Midnight Express, you know, t- taping all of that hash to his midsection. Like that's what his dad yeah. did. But Ralph still looked up to the guy and, um, and Ralph thought it was really cool that his dad would give him, you know, it was like a brick. It was the size of a brick and it was pretty good stuff. And his dad said, you know, don't smoke it all or, or something to the effect of only smoke a little bit of it and sell the rest, you know. And so that's basically the present was if you sell it, you'll get money and, you know, you'll have money for the whole summer, you know, kind of thing. And
1: you learn about business.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Ralph and I started carving this thing up. You know, we had a scale and we started making little gram baggies. And we, we would go to the beach, um, Hollover Beach, and we would sell them, you know, for like 10 bucks a bag or something. Um, in the meantime, we were smoking as much of it as, you know, we were smoking that shit like left and right. But that's the reason why I was hanging out with Ralph every day. Plus, we got along really well. We liked the same kinds of music. And, and he and I were pretty good friends that summer. We were pretty inseparable. So we were on this... Ad- journey on this adventure home and um, you know of course we had some hash with us and we had a pipe so you know every once in a while we'd stop and take a hit and so we were we were doing fine i mean we were you know sort of in a good headspace um ralph he was a couple years older um he was about 16 at the time and he was pretty arrogant guy i mean he was really cocky and really arrogant and um, he just had this, I don't know, this attitude uh, where he just didn't take any shit from anyone. But not like in a way where you would admire him. It was more uh, in a way where you would he, – he was almost dislikable, you know. And you had to know him to understand him and be friends with him. Mm-hmm. But if you didn't know him, you would just think, wow, that kid's a jerk. Um, and he would just do things sometimes that, you know, really – unnecessary kind of pushing buttons and stuff like that. So we're walking on Collins Ave and there's this cop car pulled off from the side of the road. And we see there's two cops. Now, keep in mind, we, we've got hash on us, you know. I mean, not the whole brick, but, you know, we have, you know, a few grams on us. And, um, and of course, we're reeking of the shit, too, because we've been smoking it, right? Right. So he gets this idea. and He says, he goes, we should ask those cops for a ride home. And I said, you know, why would you want to do that? And he says, well, they're public servants, right? He said, we're kids, we're minors, you know? And I said, if anything, they'll just call our parents. So I was telling him, like, don't do it. Of course, he didn't listen to me. He walks right up to the cops and he says, um, oh, me and my friend are lost and we need a ride home. And the cops were just sitting there and they listened to him. You know, he gave them his spiel and then they kind of just laughed in his face and they, they told us they hit the road they didn't care at all like they were just like get away from me kid yeah exactly it was like that's not my problem yeah. but they literally didn't give a shit at all they were just like get out of here It took us hours to get home. We kept on stopping and just doing goofy stuff. And eventually we get to Sunny Isles and then, you know, so we're walking and the whole time Ralph has been um, hitchhiking. He's been sticking his thumb out, but nobody stopped for us. Uh, So now it's about, it's late. I mean, it's like three in the morning or something. And of course, you know, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have a radio with us. We didn't know what had gone on that night. We had no idea. In a sense, because of this adventure, we were cut off from what happened in our neighborhood. And so um, about 3.30, 3, 3.30 in the morning, we're walking on Sunny Isles and this car's is coming. He sticks out his thumb and the car stops. I couldn't believe it. It was like, you know, this whole time we'd been hitchhiking and people were just ignoring us. And all of a sudden there's this car, this little Japanese car, you know, I don't know, probably a Corolla or something. like And so it pulls over and we get in or, you know, we approach it. And Ralph sort of looks inside and, you know, Ralph had a good sense of for reading people. And he sensed that something didn't seem right. Hmm. Um, But we didn't want to lose the ride. So he makes the effort to get into the back seat. He doesn't want to sit in the front seat. So, of course, he puts me in that awkward position where I have to socialize with this person, right? Because I'm sitting in the front. And um, the first thing I notice when I get in the car is the, the car just reeks of beer. I mean, this guy's been drinking. Okay. And um, he was wearing like a, a tennis outfit, you know, sort of like these really short shorts and like a little sweater on top. Um, but he was nice enough to stop for us, you know, so it wasn't, a, you know, I was OK. So we're he's got the radio on and we're driving and he asked us some questions. He says, you know, wants to know what we're doing out, you know, so late. And um, he could see that we're kids. I mean, Ralph actually looked a little bit older. So, you know, maybe he could pass for 18. Um, I certainly couldn't 14. I looked like I was 11. You know, yeah. so he just wanted to know why we were out. And, we, you know, we more or less told him, you know, the story that we got stranded and the bus never came. And finally, we're getting closer to where he's about to drop us off. And he asked us if he wanted to hang out and party with him. And at one point, he puts his arm on my leg and um, Ralph. I can't remember what he said, but he said something somewhat offensive, enough to sort of put the guy off. And uh, I opened the door and uh, we were getting out of the car. At this point, the guy seemed a little bit pissed off. He made the effort to stop for us and whatever intentions he had or whatever he thought and obviously wasn't going to happen. And then he said, uh, you guys should be more careful when you're hitchhiking because bad things happen at night or bad things have happened tonight we didn't know what he was talking about we thought he was just kind of pissed off and then right before i closed the door he says don't get shot and (laughs) and i'm thinking like what is he talking about and ralph and i were so freaked out by the whole thing that we thought you know he was going to follow us weird
1: The strange man who gave Mike and his friend a ride from Sunny Isles back to their neighborhood was indeed very creepy. And to this day, Mike doesn't know how he knew about the Richard Brush shooting so early and before it was even reported in the news. Sure, it's possible that the man's references to bad things happening tonight and kids getting shot were just a coincidence. But regardless, his comments contributed to an uneasy feeling. On this late night journey, Mike and Ralph were genuinely freaked out by this guy. And after he dropped them off, they were compelled to take precautions when walking home the rest of the way.
0: And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, is that a threat? Like, is he going to pull out a gun? And like force us to get back into the car, Uh, you know? That kind of sounds like one. Yeah. So when he let us out of the car, we were on 167th Street. We were still about six blocks away from Ralph's house, which is where we were going. And we didn't even walk directly home. We actually walked zigzag. We walked like one block further away out of the way and then cut back and then another block out of the way and cut back because we figured if he was following us, Ralph didn't want him to know where he lived in case he was like shadowing us and then he would know where Ralph's house was. Right. So we get home and you know, we just, you know, probably smoked another bowl of hash once we got home. It was probably like four, four thirty in the morning. So we were up for like another hour or so, you know, and then it was like time to wind down and eventually wound up falling asleep around six. And uh the next thing I remember is someone's knocking at Ralph's door. Um, you know, it could be anyone. His mom wasn't home that night. His sister wasn't home that night. So He goes to the door and he looks out the window or whatever. And he says, Mike, it's your dad. And I said, you know, my dad. I didn't even know my dad knew where Ralph lived. Um, I mean, Ralph didn't live far from me. He only lived like two and a half blocks. But my dad had never been over Ralph's house. So that was weird. And I started thinking that, oh, my God, my dad must have seen me or someone must have told my dad that they saw me walking home last night. Because my dad worked on Collins Avenue. He worked a little bit further south from where we were, but it was it was a really good chance that one of my dad's friends or one of my dad's colleagues could have been driving up Collins and could have seen me and then like told my dad the next day and said, hey, I think I saw your son last night at like three in the morning. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> walking on the street, you know, so I thought I was in huge trouble because uh, even though my parents weren't strict, my dad worried a lot. Yeah. So he, he was definitely in that mode. Like he was definitely in that, in that frame of mind. So, I, you know, I went to the door and, you know, the first thing my dad says is like, what's with you? Like, as he could see, my hair is all messed up. You know, i <laughs> like, I look like I'd been sleeping in my clothes. And so he says, you know, what are you guys doing? You're sleeping all day. Like what, what the hell is going on here? And I just told him, I said, "No, nah, we were up late. I made up some, some story, you know, he believed it. And he says, well, I want you to come home right now because uh, he says uh, something happened to one of your friends last night. And then, you know, right there, I'm thinking about this guy who's, you know, this guy who gave us the ride and he's threatening us, you know, don't get shot. And I'm thinking, like, could it have been the same guy, you know? Yeah. He got somebody. Yeah. Somebody else. Exactly. That's I was thinking that. So then I says, well, who was it? And he says, your friend, Richard. And I said, Richard. I said, Richard Clark. Now. The reason why I said Richard Clark is because Richard Clark was a much better friend of mine than Richard Brush. And my dad knew Richard Clark. So I figured, well, OK, if something happened to Richard Clark and my dad was genuinely worried, it had to have been like a good friend like Richard Clark. So I said, well, so what happened to him? He goes, well, he got shot. He's dead. And I said, what? And for that moment, I'm thinking like he was, you know, one of my better friends. Yeah. And I couldn't believe it. And I, I couldn't think of a scenario where like, why would he get shot? And then he said something about, you know, he was breaking into someone's house and he someone shot him. And I just thought, OK, I guess it wasn't that guy that picked us up last night. You know? mm-hmm. So I'm walking with him now because he insisted I go home and I'm walking uh, down 161st Street, which is where Ralph's house is. And I I turn right and walk up Northeast Fourth Avenue towards my street. And the minute I turn the corner, I look up at the intersection. I see my friend Tony Simmons and um, he's standing there. And he's excited and, um, he's waving to me, um, as if, you know, he's got something to tell me now, since I already know that Richard Clark has been shot, I can assume that he knows it too. And he wants to tell me, you know, cause that's the way Tony Simmons was. He was, he was very gossipy. He wanted to control the information. And, uh, as I approach the corner, uh, the intersection where my block is, um, He says, Did you hear the news? And I said, Yeah. And I was a little bit perturbed. Like I was a little, a little mad at him because he seemed a little bit too giddy. Um, And I just said, What's wrong with you? What what do you mean, like happy about it or? Not happy. Not happy. Certainly wasn't happy. But uh, I would say more um, uh, intense. Okay. I said to him, I already know what happened. My father just told me. And he says, oh, but you don't know what really happened or something like that. I said, I go, what do I need to know? You know, he's, he's dead. He got shot. There's nothing you're going to tell me about Richard Clark that I don't know. And he said, Richard Clark? He said, Richard Clark didn't get shot. Richie got shot. There was only one Richie in our neighborhood, and that was Richard Brush.
1: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on
0: linkedin.com people today.
1: It was clear at this point that there had been a terrible misunderstanding and that the victim Mike's dad had been referring to was, in fact, Richard Brush, who was only known as Richie to the other kids in the neighborhood and never Richard. Though Richie was not as close a friend to Mike as Richard Clark, he was nonetheless horrified and still confused about the series of weird events that had happened the night before. It's at this point that I'd like to introduce another very important character to this story, a boy by the name of Tony Simmons.
0: So Tony was a, a friend of mine who lived two doors down on Northeast 160th Street. I had known him pretty much my whole life because he lived in his house pretty much from the time he was born. I lived in my house pretty much from the time I was born. You know, his parents were the strict kind. You know, we, we, <laughs> this is a theme that's going to continue to uh, reoccur. Were you like the only kid who had cool parents? I was one of the few. Okay. But Tony's parents were strict. His parents were more old-fashioned, yeah. His parents were still together, which was kind of rare. Uh, Most of my friend's parents were divorced. But uh, yeah, they were very traditional. Um, They were Jewish. And uh, that was, you know, a big part of their identity. I actually wound up becoming pretty good friends with Tony's mom. Her name was Shirley, Shirley Simmons. And really, really nice lady. Um, We used to have great conversations with her. Their father was a, um, a PE teacher at the other junior high school in our neighborhood, the junior high school for North Miami Beach, which was John F. Kennedy, JFK. Okay. So the two junior high schools were Thomas Jefferson, which is the one I went to. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was uh, John F. Kennedy, JFK. Dead presidents, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so all in all, a pretty good family. You know, like one of the few families in our neighborhood that stayed together and, you know, for all intents and purposes, did the right things, uh, made sure their kids went to college and that kind of stuff. The first two sons pretty much grew up that way. They were responsible. They went to school. They, you know, made sure they had their education and eventually moved out. Tony was a little different. You know, Tony, Tony was kind of like the, you know, the black sheep of the family. Why is that? Um, I, you know, it's hard to say. He was. I really had to do like a psychoanalysis I would just say he just seemed unhappy hmm. um, you know most kids who are the youngest get spoiled because by then the parents just give the kid whatever he wants or whatever he or she wants uh, I don't know if that was the case with Tony um, he seemed to envy his brothers he seemed to think that his brothers had it better than he did and maybe that's just part of being spoiled I don't know there's certain there's different ways of being spoiled you know, once we got to be pretty good friends. And we talked about this kind of stuff. He definitely um, conveyed that to me that he just felt like he kind of got the short end of the stick in his family or something like he was the hand me down kid. And, you know, um, and maybe that's because of his parents being somewhat, you know, traditional and kind of strict and they wanted Tony to pull his weight, you know, whatever. Um, But we never included him and he never really made an effort to join us. He never seemed to want to hang out with us. Um, He was uh, effeminate um, in a way that was really obvious. Um, We just figured, you know, he wasn't interested in hanging out with us. And, um, you know, we certainly weren't. It wasn't mean spirited. No, no, it wasn't mean spirited. It was sort of like, you know, live and let live. So I'd see him around um, the the only time. I mean, I used to see him with Richie. Um, The reason why Tony and Richie were best friends was because Richie's grandmother lived next to Tony's house. And so from a really early age, Tony wound up befriending Richie. Uh, So they became friends and and, uh, they were friends, you know, for all of those years that I wasn't friends with Tony. Um, You know, he says, you know, Richie was his best friend. Okay. And Richie used to visit his grandmother a lot. So he was pretty much there at that house at least once or twice a week. So how many years then would you say that they were best friends? She, I'd say probably from as early as Tony could remember, you know, so they were closer in age um, than I was because they're only a year apart. So mm-hmm. once again, these days it's hard to sort of imagine, you know, because we live in such an interconnected world with social media and stuff like that. But back in those days... When you're a little kid, even one semi-busy street that cuts you off from, you know, your house off from like someone else's house, even that can be enough of a, a barrier to sort of be best friends with someone, you know, because if you're like five, six, seven years old, you're not going to go that far from your house. So if there are people who are like right across the street from you or like literally right next door or in a, a distance that's safe to walk and your mom's just you know going to let you do it or whatever, that you're more likely to befriend someone in that little square than you will someone who you have to cross a busy street to go visit. Yeah,
1: right. Uh, that's a good point. And that's
0: really what it was like back yeah. then. Yeah. So, it's interesting because we talked about this in the other episode where we said, you know, in a lot of ways, especially once we got in our early teens and teens, um, we certainly had more freedom than a lot of kids do today. Yeah. So we could ride our bikes out later at night and not have to call mom or whatever. We could do those sorts of things. But by the same token, we were also more shut off than kids are today because we didn't have the computer. We didn't have the internet. And so our community was literally those who you could physically hang out with or maybe pick up the phone and talk on the phone. Yeah. Our geography became very small. Yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. It was the first day of summer. It was literally the last day of school. School bell rang. We all just ran out of that school like as fast as we possibly could. You know? It's 1977. Um... And it was a Friday, Uh, me and my friends, Richard Clark being one of them, and this other kid, Jeff Horton, we were hanging out on our BMX bikes in front of my house, sort of just kicking around in front of my porch. And um, Tony Simmons comes walking down the street in front of us. And I had noticed that in the weeks leading up to this, I had been seeing more of him. He was getting more daring. Like he never would come... Close to our house. It's was almost, almost as if he was afraid. Okay. Some of my brother's friends were pretty scary, so I, I could see why, you know. Like tough guys, you know. And um and so Tony's kind of soft dude. He was uh I wouldn't say he was fat, but he was kinda of soft. He was, you know, Pillsbury Doughboy kind of thing, you know. Like I said before, he was effeminate and um he dressed in a very funny way. Um he wore these Thick rimmed glasses Oversized glasses His hair was always His hair was nice I mean he was He was always well groomed um, But his hair was sort of Blow dried back You know Sort of combed back And he used to wear these Clothes that just The only person I can think of That you know He reminds me of It would be like A cross between Charles Nelson Reilly And Elton John If I had to describe Tony I would say He had elements of those two guys So definitely a real 70s kind of look. And um, we as kids, we didn't really know what to make of that. I mean, in some ways, he was more mature. Like his image, the way he presented himself was more adult. But we as kids, you know, me being 12 years old at the time, and, you know, we didn't see any value in that. You know, (laughs) we thought that was ridiculous. You know, it was easy to make fun of him. It was easy to sort of yell out something or, you know, whatever, tease him. So, uh, I don't know what got into me this one day. I guess I was just, I was probably in a good mood because school had just ended and um, it was the beginning of the summer and I was with my friends and I was probably like just showing off. So I threw down my bike, he's walking down the street and I start chasing him. I start, well, at first I was just approaching him, you know, just trying to scare him and just trying to get a rise out of him just to see what would happen. And I could see that he was getting scared, you know, he was... (laughs) he was starting, like it's his body language he was getting more and more guarded as I got closer to him um, and as I was approaching him um, and by the way this is all just an act but, but I just I was just playing it up and as I got closer to him I was just like what are you doing man what's going on and finally he broke like he started running like he he was scared enough to where he started running away from me so I started running after him and we wound up in this house across the street and this house in our neighborhood was known for having this really weird grass like It wasn't like the rest of our lawns where we just had like this really nice grass. You could like lay in the lawn. It was like really soft grass. and It just felt really nice. This house across the street, they had this really sort of prickly grass that was almost spiky. And um, if you ever walked on this guy's lawn uh, barefoot, so sometimes we would play um, street football in front of the house. And... um, if you went out of bounds there, it always sucked because if you didn't have shoes on, it was like, yikes, like this <laughs> spiky. just like, you know, so he he, he was running from me and um, and he just fell like he like some people like they just give up, you know, he's just like, OK, <laughs> he just like so he just falls, you know, and he just falls in that grass. And I knew how painful that was because I had been on that grass before. Um, and he was, you know, at this point, he was like, oh, because like, it was he was laying on his back and so um i jumped on him and i pinned him down you know like as if i was gonna like beat him up or something and he was like oh like come on man like he was already sort of pleading for mercy kind of thing and then i said to him i go like why are you running away from me and he was just like i don't know he said the obvious thing like i don't know i thought you were gonna do something and i said no i started laughing and i said no man i'm just messing with you and like i helped him up and brushed him off you know and just sort of invited him over and you know we my friends were laughing and stuff and That's basically how we... What a Napoleon Dynamite moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Well, that's the way we met. So... After this incident with Tony, we became fast friends. I mean, basically, um, you know, the knock on him was that my brother and his friends and most of my friends, they just thought Tony was gay. And back in those days, if you're gay, like, you know, at least if you act gay and people think you're gay, even if you're not and you just present yourself in that way, um, it's a reason to ostracize that person. It's a reason to just, you know, forget it. I don't want to be friends with him. I don't want to be seen with him kind of thing. Instant outcast. Yeah, exactly. So um, luckily, one of the better things that my mom did for me and my brother was she raised us to not be bigots and to not be uh, prejudiced. So, you know, I was one of the few kids in my neighborhood who had black friends, Mm -hmm. who had uh, Cuban friends, who had Jewish friends. So why not have a gay friend? <laughs> it didn't matter to yeah. me as long as he was cool. And Tony was cool. He was a nice guy. I mean, once I got to know him, um, he was a lot of fun. I mean, he was just, he added a dynamic to my group of friends that none of us had. Like I said before, he carried himself in a more mature manner. There was something that he added to our dynamic that was unique and special. The drawback on him, however, was that he had a tendency to lie and um, his lying sometimes would just really get out of control um, to the point where I would say he was he was a pathological liar. Mm -hmm. I was once talking to his mom, Shirley, and I just said, you know, Tony lies a lot. And she said, oh, yeah, of course. And then she said, because he's really good at mixing in the truth with the lies, And she goes, if you're really smart, you'll be able to tell the difference. Wow. She's really giving you some insight. Yeah. I thought, wow, that's. That's pretty cool, you know, and that's coming straight from the mom. And I took it somewhat as a challenge. You know, I like Tony. He was one of my better friends. I certainly didn't want to stop being his friend. And I had been putting up with his lying anyway. But now I saw it more as like, yeah, perhaps maybe some of the things that he has said to me are true. And I just take everything he says. It's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, OK, he's, he's bullshitting again. But the truth is, is actually sometimes he's telling the truth. You know, you just have to know which is which. So I, I started to see patterns in his lying that um, most of his lies were built on things that really happened, but they would get exaggerated. You know, he would just really stretch them out for full effect. In other words, he always denied being gay. Okay. And to this day, I don't know if he is straight, gay, bisexual Never really mattered to me, but uh, he always denied it. You know, that was one of the things he was very defensive about, which I don't blame him. You know, whenever, whenever anyone teased him about that or, you know, just called him fag or, or, oh, you know, where's your gay friend? You know, back in those days, for sure. And it would be a protection thing,
1: self-preservation
0: thing. You know, he'd let other things slide. Um, He had a big nose, for instance. Um, and one of my nicknames for him, which was once again, not mean it was, it was endearing. Sometimes I didn't always call him this, but sometimes I would call him the nose. Um, people used to call me hair, by the way. Okay. They call you what? Hair. Because I used to have, you know, this crazy long hair, like bushy hair. Well, Robert Plant kind of long hair, especially at this time when I was like 12, 13. They would Um, just call you hair? Yeah. Like, like, you know, just different (laughs) variations on hair, uh, and, and other Kinds of nicknames that we all had nicknames for each other. Okay, so it was it was all in good fun, good taste, and everything. Yeah. um So you know, one of my nicknames for him was Nose, and he eventually he started referring to himself as that. You know, he would just like <laughs> he was like, "Hey, Mike, it's the nose," yeah. you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> you know. Um. So you know, that's just just wow. to give you an idea of of there was a certain level of playfulness and acceptance when it was understood that it was playful, um, but when it came to You know, people calling him gay or assuming that he was gay, um, he would really take offense to that and he would deny it vehemently. He would just be like, no, I'm not, you know. And a lot of times he would compensate for that. So he would go to a party and I would believe that he went to a party. You know, he'd go to some friend's house or something like that. And what actually happened was that it was just a party and like nothing really happened. Like maybe he smoked a joint or two and listened to some music and hung out with some people. And then he left, you know, but the next day he would say, I went to this party last night and it was amazing. You missed out. Um, There were all these chicks Mm -hmm. and I got laid and, you know, there was this orgy and, and, you know, eventually you start to realize that, you know, he's just compensating, you know, he's just saying, well, I wasn't with Mike last night. So here's an an opportunity for me to try to project my masculinity because there's no way for anyone to check it and I can just go crazy and say that this happened and this and it would just get so ridiculous, the lying and the exaggerations and, and, you know, that I would just have to say, look, you know, I don't believe you. So why are you telling me this? Like, don't even waste your time. Another thing about him was uh, he had this cassette player. It used regular-sized cassettes. It was mono. It had a condenser mic in it, and it just had, like, the buttons on the front. And it was weird. Like, he even had, like, a little uh, neck. Like, he could wear it around his neck, and it would just sort of hang. He almost looked like Toby the Robot or something. Like, he would have, like, this, <laughs> you know, on, on his chest is where the tape recorder would hang. And he would just walk around, and it, it would just be on. I can't even remember exactly... Where he got it from, it must have been a gift. It was an older one, so maybe maybe it was one of his brother's uh, cassette players that he just, his mom probably just said, hey, you know, you, you can have this now or something like that. Another one of these hand-me-downs, you know, um, that he mm-hmm. hated so much. But in this case, um, he really took a liking to this tape recorder and and in the beginning um, we just used it we didn't even have boom boxes in those days I mean they existed but like no one really had one in my neighborhood so I would bring a cassette you know I had some music that I taped you know I, I had records you know and I would make cassettes off of my records and you know Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith or whatever and then you know eventually we started getting more into like the punk stuff and the new wave stuff Um, around this time Cheap Trick was one of our favorite bands at the time Mm -hmm. 1979 you you can just imagine that's when like uh, that live from Budokan record was like on the radio all the time so I had a cassette of that and we used to listen to it on his little tape recorder and you know we'd walk around and you know we'd smoke a joint and that was our music Um, another reason why he would bring the cassette player over to my house was because I had started playing the guitar I started playing the guitar mm-hmm. in 1978. And so when he and I first met, which was the summer of 77, you know, we were more mobile where we would hang out and like ride our bikes. And, and, and it wasn't just me and Tony, it was you know, me, Tony, Richard Clark, uh, Jeff Horton, you know, group of us, uh, my other friend Javier Polanco. Um, so we'd ride our bikes around the neighborhood and stuff. But once I started playing the guitar, um, I started riding my bike less often because I would want to bring my guitar with me. Because I was obsessed with practicing. And I started feeling like if I could, if I have my guitar there, and even if I just like practice that D chord or that F chord, you know, mm-hmm. while I'm hanging out with my friends, like I'm not performing for them, I'm not playing songs. For, I wasn't even good enough yet, you know, but I would just bring the guitar along so I could noodle on it. You know, it was just a little acoustic, like nylon string acoustic. But he hated that guitar. He hated it because it like he didn't like the fact that wherever we went, like it was as if like I was this traveling musician, like (laughs) around our neighborhood. And he just thought he Uh didn't like the look of it. Like he just thought it really um, limited our options, like like things we could do. So I think one of the reasons why he started bringing this cassette player along whenever he came over to my house was if he had the cassette player, then he could say, Hey Mike, uh, Hey, grab that who cassette or grab that cheap trick cassette. And then if we had the cassette, then I wouldn't bring my guitar because, yeah. see what I mean? So he was kind of <laughs> clever in the way is like, it was a way to keep me from bringing my guitar along. Yeah. He um, wanted
1: to bulldoze you.
0: So, but, but then it sort of segued into this thing he started doing where he had this cassette, um, he would bring blank cassettes and he would just hit the record button and just record our conversations <laughs> no, dude there's going to be a party here very oh. small <laughs> And I said to him, I said, I can barely tolerate listening to us as we're speaking in real time. Like, why would you want to... Because, I mean, we talked about some pretty stupid shit, you know. And if I was stoned, like, I'd just really go down these rabbit holes of, like, these theories about, you know, life and the meaning of life and, you know, all this Mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, you haven't changed much. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Exactly. (laughs) So, he, um, he didn't like that either. He didn't like that part of our relationship because... He wasn't as much of a deep thinker, and um, he didn't like, you know, when I put that burden on him to sort of follow what I was saying. It was kind of a buzzkill for him. Yeah, yeah, because he would rather keep things on a shallow level, surfacey, sort of conversation, meaningless stuff, yeah. and just keep it at the level of jokes and just silly stuff as opposed to, like, deep stuff. Right. And so, you know, he'd bring the cassette player along, and then he would... Turn it off. Sometimes if I got too deep down a rabbit hole, he would just say like, oh, I'm because I don't want to listen to this later. And I'm like, so then don't record it. And he's like, well, I'm not. And so he's like, come on, this is like, just change the subject. Let's talk about something else. And I was like, okay, whatever, like sort of reluctantly, you know, appeasing him or whatever so this is what we did this was just a silly thing it was all him i never listened to any of the cassettes afterward because you know it didn't appeal to me Mm -hmm. he just a couple times he would try hey let's smoke a joint and listen to like what we talked about yesterday and i'm like (laughs) (laughs) he's like it's hilarious there's this one spot where you say such and such and it's so funny and i'm like "Nah, i'll take a rain check i'm not really into that nowadays he'd probably be a podcaster yeah yeah exactly (laughs)
1: We'll be right back. So can you tell me about Bob Lane and how he fits into all of this?
0: Yeah. So Bob Lane, Bob Lane was a year older than my brother, actually, Um, which, you know, when I was a kid, four years difference is a lot. I mean, At the time when this happened, 1979, I was 14. Bob was already at 18. He was already an adult. Uh, Bob Lane was really into cars and motorcycles. Those were like his two favorite things. Um, He also played the drums. He was like, you know, there's like two kinds of people. There's thinkers and doers. Bob Lane was definitely a doer. You know, Um, you know, some people have a gift for creativity and you know making things up and whatever that thing might be. And then other people are just better with their hands. Uh, wh- what they want out of life is different. You know, Bob Lane wanted to go fast. Okay. So what happened was um, Bob Lane's dad uh, was on I-95, that same freeway. Um, it's like a really important freeway if you live in greater Miami area. And his, he blew a tire out. And so he pulled off to the side of the freeway and he was changing a tire and a car swerved off the road and, and hit him and killed him. And um, that's how his father died. Wow. Yeah. And it happened when Bob Lane was, I think he was about 13 or something when it happened. 13 or 14. Maybe 15. I can't remember. But uh, as a result, um, he inherited a bunch of money when he turned 18. And so, um, so yeah, he had this trust fund. And when he turned 18, he he got all this money. And all of a sudden, Bob Lane was like, you know, he had, I remember the coolest thing he had, he bought a moped, right? Okay. And one of those, one of those push, do you remember those things? It was spelled uh, P-U-C-H, I yeah. think. Um, and um, they were really popular in the mid-70s and um he i remember he came over to my house one day uh he also had a motorcycle he had a car or whatever but he came over this one day with the moped and i just begged him i was like <laughs> please let me ride it like i gotta ride this thing uh-huh. and he was kind of being a dick about it and he was like no and finally he was he said okay mike go for it And i was like oh yeah so I was like you know he was cool too you know so i took the moped and I, I disappeared for like 20 minutes He was really pissed off when I came back. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, well, I didn't say take it for 20 minutes. Now, I never knew this, but Tony Simmons, of all the friends in my neighborhood, remember I told you Tony Simmons wasn't really friends with any of the cool guys. He happened to be really good friends with Bob Lane. And I, you know, I couldn't figure it out. I was like, well, that's an odd one. Like, And even Bob Lane admitted. He said, no, I've known Tony ever since he was a little kid. And I was like, well, how did that happen? Turns out that Bob Lane's mom... And Tony Simmons' mom, surely, they were best friends. It was weird. So even though Bob Lane was considered a cool guy in my neighborhood, which he certainly was, mm-hmm. and he didn't really like people knowing that he was really good friends with Tony Simmons, but if he was asked, he would say yes. He wouldn't deny it. Okay. And of course, Tony Simmons milked it for all it's worth. Oh, me and Bob Lane, we go back. We've done this. We've done that. A lot of it was bullshit because that was like the one cool friend that he had. So there was this relationship with Bob Lane that Tony Simmons had, and it was legit.
1: There was no doubt that Tony Simmons and Bob Lane had known each other for years. They were as close as family, and though it wasn't well known to others in this group of teenagers, Mike was well aware of the kinship that this relationship held. And why is this important? Well, on the same night that Richie was killed, Tony would confide in Bob a troubling secret directly related to Richie's death.
0: So now it's two days after Richie was killed. And um, for whatever reason, I wasn't hanging out with Ralph that night. Tony comes over my house because he doesn't have Richie to hang out with anymore. And neither one of us have, um, since um, Ralph's not around, I don't have any hash to smoke. And, uh, and so we're looking for, you know, a joint. I just wanted to get stoned, you know, because Friday night, you know, Friday night's a big deal. Yeah. And um, so we're throwing a couple ideas back and forth. And then he just says, well, let's walk over to Bob Lane's. Maybe he might have something. Um, so we went, we walked over there. And uh, one thing that was curious was that Tony did not have the tape recorder with him. Which I thought was odd, right? Because uh, he'd normally have the tape recorder. Yeah. So uh, we walk over to Bob Lane's house and um, knock on his door and he answers the door and he, you know, we asked him if he had any pot and he's like, no. And I could tell right away that there was some weirdness. I just thought it was because Bob didn't want us going over to his house. You know, he just he didn't really yeah. want to hang out with us, you know, and um It didn't didn't seem that off at first, you know, but then he kind of carried on with this awkward, you know, sort of vibe as if like there was something that I didn't know about. So finally, he just comes out with it and he says something to the effect of. He goes, I see you're not carrying that stupid tape recorder anymore. And Tony says, oh, you know, like shut up or something. And this becomes the way in which the communication continues for the next few minutes is Bob Lane starting to reveal certain details. And Tony sort of standing there somewhat surprised and trying to get Bob Lane to shut up, trying to get him to stop talking. Is he really that bothered by him? Yeah, he was. The feeling was that Or at least from my perspective, it was as if Tony had told Bob Lane something. Bob Lane wasn't supposed to tell anyone, and now he was telling me. And Tony didn't want Bob Lane telling me. That's what it felt like, and that's what it was, in my opinion. So Bob Lane goes on, and he says, you know, well, I see you don't have the tape recorder. And he says to me, he was like... Mike, did you ask him why he doesn't have the tape recorder with him? You know, I said, no, I I guess I hadn't thought about it. And he says, he goes, well, I can tell you why. And, you know, at this point, Tony's still saying, shut up, man. Like, (laughs) shut up. You're not supposed to say this. You're not supposed to, you know. And Bob Lane says, well, why? He says, now that Richie's dead, he goes, I'm surprised you haven't already told Mike all of this. He said, Mike's your only friend now, you know, not including himself. But he's just saying, you know. He's really antagonizing him, huh? I almost get the feeling like he was I wouldn't say he was judging Tony but I think more than anything he was surprised that Tony was keeping me in the dark I think Bob understood why Tony would want to keep others in the dark and so Bob Lane took it upon himself to include me and say no Mike really needs to know this because he's the only friend you really have and you know and he'd say stuff like well Mike's gonna find out anyway it's like you should just let me tell him and stuff like that So the story that he proceeds to tell me is that when Richie got shot, Tony Simmons was with Richie and with Jerry. It wasn't two kids breaking into the house that day. It was three kids. And that Tony had the tape recorder with him and he was recording the whole thing. Tony thought it would be hilarious or at least interesting to tape record them breaking into Chuck's house. So, so that was the motivation for him. And that's what Bob Lane told me, which honestly, that's exactly what I would expect. That fits right in with what, what Tony was doing at that yeah. time. So he goes, Mike, he tape recorded the whole thing. He's like, don't you realize what that means? And I, it, it still, it hadn't occurred to me. You know, I'm still thinking like, well, yeah, of course, Tony tape records everything. And he's like, no, but he says he tape recorded the whole thing, Richie getting killed.
1: At this point in time, Mike had no idea that Tony was with Richie when he got shot. Remember, This is all happening on July 20th, just two days after the shooting. The police began their investigation and had already interviewed Chuck. They were also looking for Jerry Brukowski, the other boy implicated in the break-in, who was nowhere to be found, and we'll talk more about him later. But for now, Mike's head is spinning with all of this totally new information, and he's not sure what to think. He's wondering things like, where exactly was Tony when he was recording this? Was he standing outside next to Jerry, who was supposedly giving Richie a boost to get to the window? Or was he inside the house? Bob Lane
0: goes on to tell Mike what he heard. And so Bob Lane is describing what he heard on the cassette. And he says, you know, you hear Richie going through the window, and then when he gets through, he bumps his knee on the tub. You know, it's one of those ceramic bathtubs with a shower, you know, and he sort of came down in an awkward way and, you know, says, oh, shit or something or fuck or whatever, like he banged his knee and then um, he sort of recovers from that. And there's like, you know, a few seconds of silence and then you just hear this loud sound. But he explained the sound of the gunshot, not as the sound of a gunshot, but just as distortion on the tape recorder. It just sounded like like it just the tape just broke up. It was like he goes, you hear the gun go off. He goes, but it didn't sound like a gun. It sounded more like a firecracker or, or like a just a crackling noise. Once again, this is one of those little details that I don't think Bob Lane would have thought of. He doesn't seem like the kind of person that would make up something like this. And keep in mind, every time Bob Lane conveys one of these details to me, Tony's standing there like, you know, sweating and trying to get bob lane to stop talking he's like okay okay you've told him enough that's it you know let's go and he's trying to get me to leave and i'm like no i said i want to hear this you know so uh and then and then the most gruesome part of it is he says you can actually hear the final moments of richie's life you can hear him groaning um one of the things he says that richie is saying over and over is that he says it burns he's saying it burns it burns Once again, that's another detail that people don't, you don't see this in movies and you don't hear people say this, you know, but if you ever talk to someone who's ever been shot, they'll tell you how much it burns because that bullet is hot. That bullet comes out of the gun. It's, it's hot, man. It's traveling at a high velocity. It's just, it's just rifled its way through a a barrel and those bullets, they get into you, but they also burn you at the same time. So the fact that Bob Lane threw in that detail is just, you know, I'm like, wow. And, you know, and yes, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking maybe they're pranking me. But then again, if they were pranking me, I don't think Tony Simmons would be so insistent to want to leave. He'd be more in it. He'd be getting more enjoyment out of it. You know, Um, he wasn't enjoying himself. He was he was getting very stressed out and he was getting, you know, actually quite angry at Bob Lane for revealing all of this to me. And Bob was just, you know, like I said, he was just speaking freely. He wasn't pausing. He was just it really honestly sounded like he was telling me something that he had just experienced 2 days earlier. And he just said that, you know, Richie was groaning and moaning and gurgling, like sort of gurgling noises, and then that's it, like the tape just shuts off or something. And and it's truly horrific. I mean, if you think that like you said in episode 1, the apparatus of his death Was horrific. This cassette by far tops it. So, what winds up happening is Bob Lane says that, well, Tony ran from Richie's. And um, he says that he meant to come to my house, but knew that I wasn't home. Because remember, I was with Ralph that night. I was going to this girl's house. And um, so, Tony knew I wasn't around. So, he went to the only other person who was his friend you know, in the neighborhood, which was Bob Lane. And Bob Lane just happened to be home and he's, the kid's in tears and he's freaking out. He doesn't know if Richie's dead. He doesn't know if he's, doesn't know anything. So do you know what happened to the cassette? Um, a few weeks later, I was at his house and, um, we were in his bedroom hanging out and then he went, left his bedroom for a second. And I started snooping around and I was Sort of looking through his bookcase and stuff to see if I could find the cassette. And um, he came back in and he was like, What are you doing? I said, I, I, I just told him straight up, I said, I'm looking for that cassette, man. And he said, He kind of sort of slipped at that point. He says, Well, my mom threw it away. So at this point, he did confirm it existed. You know, I, I basically stopped bugging him about it after that and just, uh, just accepted the fact that, you know, it probably didn't exist anymore. Yeah. After all this, did it change in any way how? felt
1: about Tony and how did it affect your friendship with him
0: it it actually did kind of affect me in a sense that um well first of all like I said before I hadn't thought of the Richie shooting in that sort of way like that there was a conspiracy or that there was anything other than you know when I found out that Jerry was involved I wasn't surprised it it made sense to me you know by now I I kind of was aware of the fact that Richie had been stealing things So, until I heard the story of this cassette, I didn't think that there was anything else to the story other than the fact that Richie, you know, got shot. And that was it. But after this cassette, I really started thinking about it. Like, it really kind of, I mean, it kind of creeped me out, to be honest. Like, for a few days there, I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that when this kid died, there was a recording of it, and that it was captured. It could be sitting on Tony's dresser right now, you know, and it's like...
1: yeah. You felt that it shouldn't be kept a secret. You felt that, you know, there's something wrong about this.
0: Yeah, there was something wrong about it. Like, I don't think his intention was, it was so premeditated that he's like, I want to record Richie dying. I don't, you know, he's not that macabre. But it was the result of him, you know, just kind of doing stupid shit. You know, all of those kids, you know, like, well, certainly Richie, uh, Jerry, and Tony. Um, and how that affected our friendship was that, I had already started to have different feelings about Tony by this time Mm -hmm. because of an incident that took place a a couple months earlier where I was asked to meet with Chuck in the park one day and this was all arranged by Tony Simmons and um, I wound up meeting Chuck
1: Next time on Booby Trap.
0: We always thought that the place was haunted. There were these two really scary looking like Charles Manson guys. From the very beginning he just he just had a vibe and it was not good. He was a scary dude. I wasn't expecting that at all.
1: Miami Chronicles' Booby Trap is produced, written, and recorded by James Archer and Michael Fragimetti. We'd like to thank the following people for their help and contributions in creating this episode. Dan Wolf, Mark McCartney, Small Time Napoleon, Mr. Sonny Duvall, Todd Statman, Jazar, Liana Echeverry, and the team at the Apostrophe Podcast Company. But most of all, a very heartfelt thanks to you, our listeners.
0: Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic universal monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.